Chapter 22 with the Next Gen Movement, we have Dr. Constance Scharf with us from Washington State. We came across her work on Forbes magazine where she had a write-up about performance and addiction. She is a significant contributor to the addiction and mental health space in the United States and is really innovating on new ways to look and deal with the insidious nature of addiction and the effects on society. We're really looking forward to having her on the show. Welcome to Next Gen Movement, our sole mission to empower tomorrow's leaders by harnessing and unleashing collective wisdom, lessons and experiences of thought leaders within the community. Constance Scharf, hopefully I've said your last name correctly. We welcome yes, you, you have. to thank you. We welcome you to chapter 23 of the Next Gen Movement. So Constance Scharf, aka Ahuva Bhatia. Hopefully yeah. I said that correctly. Your Hebrew is quite good. Okay, Ahuva Bhatia. Um, she is science and research chair at Rock to Recovery, which is a music-based therapy medium. She has written a couple books, Ending Addiction for Good, Meeting God at Midnight, along with numerous publications. In fact, that's where I found you on one of your publications within Forbes, uh, the Forbes article. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting article, and we'll go into that shortly. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're super, super excited to have you. And one of the things that I found uh, on, 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 on the internet when I was looking, uh, researching your, your stuff was this whole piece around um, kind of transformative studies and radical life change. And, and Zach and I and our co-hosts are big believers in um, proactive disruption in our own life. Sure, okay. And, mm -hmm. and, and it self-imposed crucibles or the obstacle is the way, I suppose. Can you unpack what you mean by radical life change and how do you actually commence the engineering of that within someone's life? Sure, so my PhD is actually in a field called transformative studies. Yeah. And I believe I was the first person in the world to get a degree in that field. Yeah. So I look at change, how does change occur? I specifically look at mental health and addiction, um, but how do we make changes? And what we have found in the research is that the decision at least, or the foundation for change, usually happens in a moment. It happens in an instant. It happens, you know, it doesn't have to be that white light moment, right, that some uh, people talk about, you hear about in 12-step programs, but the decision, right, to do something different, and very often the ability that goes with it happens in an instant. So um, we talk about it in, in uh, recovery as being struck sober. Just all of a sudden, even though I've relapsed 47 times, I don't want to do it anymore. Something inside me changes. I've had this experience, people tell me they've been struck vegetarian or struck vegan. You know, that it's just all of a sudden I'm in the restaurant, I'm looking at the menu, and I realize I don't eat meat anymore. Now, the transformation of your life right because to to you know go down the rabbit hole of addiction that takes time so to come out of it right we don't just say oh i'm not drinking anymore and now suddenly everything's better but the that change happens quite quickly the way that we induce it actually i've been learning about this through my research with uh yogis uh in asia uh, with meditation specialists all across the world. There's been, thank God for the Dalai Lama, he, his uh, support has really funded research into meditation. Um, and with the music therapy group, Rock to Recovery, that I work with now, we're finding that different interventions change the brain neurologically and allow for these moments. So for example, Rock to Recovery with music, playing music and singing, 
lights up the entire brain. Mm -hmm. We don't know any other activity that engages the whole brain in the same way. And it dumps oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, so that an individual gets a natural high by playing music and singing. So what we do is we go into treatment facilities for people with uh, mental health problems, drug addiction, so forth, eating disorders, veterans with trauma, traumatic brain injury, and psychological trauma, uh, youth-serving organizations. And what we find is that because the brain has this you know, hour or hour and a half of a heightened state, it disrupts the pathological patterns. And that's what gives us an in for other therapies. We find that in combination with, and I discussed this in the book, Ending Addiction for Good, we define that music, acupuncture, uh, yoga, but we're, when we talk about yoga, we're really talking about the breath more than the poses. Yeah, yeah. And meditation, that those things in, those therapies in conjunction really change the way a person is able to interact in the world. Mm. Yeah, we. I'll Zach. I'll just piggyback on that. I, I, I re, that that really resonates for for me. Um, I, as well as Tope within the group, we do endurance running, mm -hmm. which many people think I'm continuing to run from something. They don't realize it's actually mm -hmm. running towards something because it induces mm -hmm. further. Uh, there is some form of suffering and, and continued surrender in the process, which mm -hmm. does help uh, with more understanding. But I do find that it really aligns with recovery. And um, it, 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 again, it's, it's another crucible uh, because it's so uh, difficult and all encompassing that continues to disrupt uh, uh, any negative thought patterns and, and creates a bit of space for me. So I, it, it really does resonate for me and it does make a lot of sense what you just said. So there are different ways. I love that you talk about that crucible and about, you know, endurance running, which clearly I do not do, um, is that people go different directions with this, right? So one of the things that, you know, I hear from, from uh, high-end athletes, um, professional athletes, uh, endurance runners, and so forth, is that what you were talking about, about that suffering, and there's then a release from it. And it really, in many ways, for me, mirrors the um, Buddhist teachings, right? That we understand, we, we see suffering, we experience suffering, and then we recognize that suffering is a choice, right? And so we can let that go, rise above it, however, you know, whatever terms work best for the individual. Then there are those of us who like um, what they call in 12-step programs, the easier, softer way, right? And so I'm looking for, and a lot of my, you know, my peers are looking for, um, how can I do the least amount of work to get the most amount of results? So in other words, how can I eat lemon meringue pie and not get fat? That's what I'm looking for, right? And so what we can do for those individuals who don't have the stick to right? I don't necessarily, and a lot of people don't, I've been in recovery for several decades, and I don't go after that with the same heat that I went after a drink. So for someone like me, how do we, how do we get them to, to engage in this transformative process? And that's basically by tricking the brain and helping it to grow in healthy ways without so much effort. There are ways to do that. Can I ask you a question uh, about sure. that? Conference? Sure, absolutely. Do you think that the very nature of recovery though, it, it, it makes us learn, and we talk about trudging the road of happy destiny, the very nature of recovery is one where we no longer look for hacks or shortcuts. Like there is a, a certain level of acceptance that, I mean, I think that's part of what's so transformational about recovery in itself, that it teaches you how to endure. And I, it's, go, go ahead. Yeah, I think that's true to some extent. 
I think that what changes, first of all, in early recovery, I think we're all looking for hacks. I, I think that's part of the process. Now, after more than 20 years, I still want the hack. I just recognize that it isn't there. And so what I do that, that I'm going to have to go through whatever the feelings are. I have to feel my feelings is what it comes down to. But what I, what my research looks at is for people who don't have that understanding, because we have a real, we have a real crisis in the United States right now, both of suicides and of opioid overdoses. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are losing between the two, right around 200,000 people a year between suicides and opioid overdoses. So I don't have the luxury of people having time and maybe they relapse and maybe they come back and all of that. They're going to die. And so I, my research focuses on what are the things that I can do to keep you involved in that process, even though I know you're going to keep looking for the easier, softer way. I mean, I, I look through the, re I, I do what I have to do, but I literally look through the research all the time to say, Ooh, what's the magic, what's the magic thing that's yeah. going to make it better, yeah. you know, even though I know that that's, that that's not how it works. I think that that's human nature. Yeah, for sure. Constance, I, I want to, um, like, step in because my brain's just going a billion miles an hour right sure, sure. <laughs> i'm thinking about what you're saying kind of relaying that back to to, to my life so <clears throat> i'm curious right because like what rj said around endurance running like i kind of found that like when i got sober i, I started playing golf and again i sort of channeled a lot of my addictive tendencies into a sport that it was constantly improving, constantly getting better. And I'm curious, the people that you work with, right, and, and assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, like you get people when they're at their, like, as you said, that, that breaking point, right, where they're at a crossroads, yeah. do they keep going yeah. down the road or they, do they start to move towards change? So of the people you work with through the music recovery, um, where... Obviously, at that point in time, all they're trying to do is, is stop abusing the substances that they're, they're, they're currently abusing or, from a mental health perspective, get to a place of clarity. What does life or what does the program look like for them post getting to a point where they're no longer needing that? So, i.e., you know, year one, year two, because... I guess the, the reason I'm asking the question is what I found for myself is, um, you know, when I, when I sought the, the, like recovery, all I wanted to do was get sober. But what I realized was as soon as I got sober, in my head, when I was in active addiction, I thought if I, if I just get sober, then my life's going to be fine, right? Like that's the only thing in my, in my life that's wrong, right? But what I quickly realized was, as soon as I get sober, I've still got all the problems. I've still got all the the the, the challenges that I, you know, if not more, right? I've just got, I just don't have the, the device to kind of stop the noise. So I'm curious from your perspective, um, like what does that look like for the people that go through the program? Sure. So Rock Recovery is an ancillary service. It goes into treatment facilities. So we work with more than 100 facilities across four states in the United States. We also work with um, the Air Force Wounded Warrior Progra Program, both in the U.S. and uh, in Europe. Uh, and then uh, for those people that you're talking about who have been sober for a while or have what I call normal life problems, right? The spouse, you know, isn't doing what we want them to do. The business <laughs> isn't going the way we want it to go whatever, um, we uh, actually run retreats. Um, yeah. And people can work with us directly. But what we do is try to give people a solid foundation and understanding. I specifically, I'm not a musician. I'm the only person in, the, in Rock to Recovery who's not. Everybody else is a musician. We try to give people a real understanding of what they're up against because relapse is so easy. And the time when you're most likely to die 
is right after you've left treatment and relapse, right? Because your tolerance is down, but your brain still says, I use at this level. So when you're talking about opioids, that is very often a deadly combination. But as you know, recovery changes, right? And after those first really two to five years, depending on what your life looks like, there's a settling down, this is what I've observed, a settling down into the recovery process and an understanding of, wait, this really wasn't about drinking and using. Drink, stopping the substance use saved my life, right? But then now I have to learn how to live, right? And in, in you know, 12 step literature, it talks about living life on life's terms. I don't get to get my way, right? I just, uh, I just gave a lecture uh, last week about uh, how, do we, how do we make amends to people? And one of the things it's very hard to make amends for is gossip, right? When I speak badly about someone, well, why do I gossip about them, right? Why do we gossip on the whole? It's because they're not doing what I want them to do. They're not behaving. And so if I can, you know, push them in a certain way through my words, or communally manipulate them, right? That's where gossip, a lot of gossip comes from. You know, if you were doing what I wanted you to do, you wouldn't be on my thoughts, right? Mm. So it's learning how to live with that. And then what I found in, in very long-term sobriety is that I'm really learning what do I want to bring into my life? Right. And this is this is the spiritual path. This is, you know, the hero's journey, those sorts of mm. those sorts of things of what is it that matters to me? And I hear this a lot from millennials. Millennials get this earlier than my generation. Right. Mm. Is that what what is of value to me and how can I bring more of that in my life? How do I create time for that? How do I get out of my own way? This is a question I ask of myself a lot. How do I get out of my own way so I can get where I want to go? Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Constance, I wanted to, uh, I, in, in one of your articles that you, written, yeah. uh, that you had written in the Forbes um, uh, piece, the article was on addiction and high performance. And this has become a, a new passion of mine because what I have started to observe, I observed this very early on in recovery, but I see it in the endurance running community. There's a lot sure. of untreated isms in there and alcoholics and addicts, but there is a lot of people in recovery within the endurance community. And along my journey, I've met a lot of high performing Uh, people that are now sober and what I have started to become interested in over the last year or so is can we start to re or redistribute that energy that addicts and alcoholics have that tend to cause their destruction if we can identify that very early within young people can we harness that and start to exploit that in a more healthy way, what Tofin, Zach, and I call purposeful suffering sometimes. So we see a lot of, especially in the endurance community, this, 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 this shifting of this, this seismic energy which addicts tend to have, which if not appropriately laid in the right directions, will, they will generally implode. Now, in your experience, um, and I just wanna unpack that article, what, have you found the connection to be between high performance and addiction? Do you feel there is a potential connection there? Yeah, there definitely is. So there are two predictors and there are various camps on this, but there are two predictors of substance abuse. One is poverty, straight up poverty. And we can look at the socioeconomic analysis and, you know, but that's, when you don't have opportunities, yeah. you want to numb. I mean, that's just a pretty straightforward way of, of expressing that. The other, and I'm I'm really also in this camp, the other predictor of substance use, um, and uh, Gabor Mate and, and others are, like me have been pioneers in this, um, is trauma. 
So what we generally see, and I started my career with a very high-end treatment center that specialized in um, A-list celebrities, C-suite executives, um, professional athletes, and whatnot, um, and helping them. So, so that is a population I've worked with quite a bit, which is why Forbes interviewed me for that article. What we see very often, not always, but very often, is that there's some sort of trauma. Now, someone who is going to be a high achiever is going to be very focused and devoted to whatever they're doing. They're the people who practice for, you know, Rock to Recovery was founded by Wes Gear, who was a touring member of Korn, touring guitarist for the band Korn. Yeah, and so he, you know, when he was a kid, right? And also, you know, smoking weed and drinking and doing all those things. He would practice for hours and hours and hours at a time, right? That's how you get to that level. I mean, it doesn't matter what your innate ability is. If you don't put in the hours, you're not going to make it. So those, so people, whether it's business, whether it's academics, you know, people like me, we read and write and study and focus, you know, the same way a runner, you know, does you know his or her routine so you're already looking at people who have this ability to hyper focus this ability to endure some sort of suffering right because it's not you know it's not fun to stay in the library when everybody else is going out to the rock concert or to get up you know three hours before everyone else to train to be the top swimmer or you know whatever and so but when that is matched with trauma, that's when we get people veering off because there are very few places where mental health issues, and I'm going to throw substance abuse in as a mental health issue because I think mm-hmm. it's get adequate treatment or adequate, you know, people have adequate access to care or that it's not, there's no stigma involved in getting care. And so if we can, and this is why I like Rock to Recovery to work with youth and youth programs because of the way the brain's pruning, you know, before the brain doesn't, doesn't stop developing until we're about 25 and then it goes into a a, a less, lesser stage of, of development. But, you know, teenagers, that brain is pruning. So if I can get in there with positive therapies, Um, we can really make some changes and have people use that focus Mm -hmm. in amazing directions. And we Mm -hmm. see this with young people. I mean, one of the things I love in, um, it isn't really covered in research so much as in popular press, but young people making a difference, right? So the Gretas, you know, who are out there leading climate change or the new innovations in, um, I've been reading about some innovations in ocean cleanup that -hmm. are made by, I mean, young people, like teenagers, young people, like Mm -hmm. in school, young people. So, you know, uh, invention and innovation and different ways of looking at the world, a lot of that is because their brains are not as fully developed as an adult brain. Mm -hmm. So they have the ability to see things Mm -hmm. that someone, you know, who's 40 or 50 or 60 can't. And we know this anecdotally, right? We don't have to look at the research, but just in our own lives. As our parents age, right? Or our grandparents, and we see how they were at 50 versus how they are at 70 or 80. And that that thinking really after 70 really starts to get very focused, right? Well, I do it that we have dinner at 430 and that's just how it, right? That's because of the way the, the brain is basically atrophying, right? It's hardening at that point. So young people don't have that. That's why innovation very often, not always, but very often comes from the young. So yeah, we absolutely can harness that, but we would have to have for it to really work on it, on a, cultural level, on a societal level, we would have to have a radically different education system. We would have to have radically different systems of government. We would probably have to 
not be as focused on consumerism and on an ever expanding economy. Um, and we would have to have much more access to mental health care. Mm -hmm. That mental health care really would have to be treated on par as physical health care, which in the United States, we are nowhere close to doing right now. That's brilliant, brilliant. I'm, um, I'm, I'm also curious around, so can you share some light around some, some kind of case studies of people that have gone through what you, your, or, or sort of been exposed to your program early and mm. I guess it's a it's two loaded question. So of the ones that have remained sober or really, really had some significant change around their life choices, what do you think the common denominator in the success is? So we, for a number of legal issues, we don't track the children. Okay. We, we don't track the children. But I am writing, actually writing a book about this right now. It's about two thirds of the way finished and all the interviews, all the research is complete. Just the editing. So what we find is that there becomes a commitment to a different lifestyle. One of the populations I really like to work with are veterans you know, especially combat veterans, but not necessarily. Because we find, or my experience is, they very often enlist young. So they're enlisting at 18, 19, 20 years old before the brain is fully developed. Because the US has been involved in armed conflict now for since 2001, so nearly 20 years, um, continuously in Iraq and Afghanistan. We have people who are not unlike what colloquially, inappropriately would be called lesser developed countries, right? We see young people involved in conflict and what it does, and we do not have an appropriate reentry program. So what we see is the way the relationships, the ability, and I, I don't mean that necessarily in single relationships, but relationships on a whole, the ability to relate to others is absolutely torn apart. Mm. And so <clears throat> what I see are people who really are become committed to trying to make, to trying to recover whatever of their former life they could. You know, one of the programs that we're very pleased to work with is the AFW2 Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. We have an epidemic of suicides. We believe that there are at least 22 veteran suicides per day. We also believe that that number is probably vastly underreported. But even at 22 a day, you're talking at just, you know, under one an hour which is astonishing. With the resiliency program with AFW2, <clears throat> I just saw, saw some numbers come out for that, that we believe that there have been two suicides from people who have participated in that program over the course of the program, which is less than the national, you know, the national expectation. So you go from having a group of veterans, which has a very high you know, uh, expectation of suicides in terms of just numbers, and then you go to, wait a minute, how did we reduce this? And so what we do is we teach people, that we, we use the term resiliency, but really what we're, we're showing people is where can my life be beautiful, right? And usually that comes in connection and it comes in gratitude, right? So one of the, the, the new ways that addiction is being looked at is the opposite of addiction is, of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of, or, or, or the cure for addiction is not sobriety. The cure for addiction is connection. And one of the things that we see is that, especially with trauma, 
like it's great to have the tools of music and yoga and meditation and all of that. Th those are all helpful. Don't get me wrong. But we also see that when someone can let in that the, that they matter in the world, that I make a difference, that my family is not better off mm -hmm. without me, right? Which is the lie that, that, you know, the suicidal mind tells us that in that connection, they can actually be, what I call loved through PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or post-traumatic stress as it's now being called. So that to me is amazing. When we can put people in connection, in small groups, in community, especially with like mind, right? So you would see this in the runner's community, right? What happens if someone, you know, breaks a leg? Everybody's gonna come to their support. Right. We see that in the addiction community, right? In the recovery community. If someone loses their job, someone, you know, is like, oh, I got something that's part-time temporary. Let me, you know, how can we help each other? We don't do that on a bigger level as much as we used to. Right. So this is something that is really important. It is that connection. It is that support. I just you asked for a case study. I just was in Austin, Texas, and had a um we had a benefit show in Austin where the, we work with not only for-profit organizations, but a not rock recovery works with nonprofits. It's how we work with veterans. It's how we work with youth groups. And we had a veteran who has tremendous um, PTSD difficulties. And um, she came to the show and, and I put her backstage with me on the side stage because there were too many people, you know, just on the floor of the concert. And, uh, the day after the show, she, she wrote to me and she said, I have a substance abuse problem and I'm checking myself into the VA. Normally, right, without the support of Rock to Recovery, AFW2 and programs like that, she would have killed herself. Mm. But she knows that this feeling, the way she was feeling is a temporary state. Mm. And yesterday she messaged me, she has 30 days clean. Mm. So that is what we're really talking about. That's one of the reasons we form a band in Rock to Recovery, right? Because what's a band? A band is a family. They fight like a family too, <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. right? They don't get yep. along. They push each other's yep. buttons, you know, but it gives us support. And anything that you need to bring into the group, is safe to bring into the group. One of the things we do also is we let people process whatever that darkness is, and that becomes part of the lyrics of the song. Yeah. But we also turn that around so that in the chorus, right, the money part of the song, as we would call it in the business, that is, we try to make that as happy as we can. So we will let a veteran give a two minute rap on why he wants to kill himself and how it was horrible to lose, you know, his friends in combat. And then the chorus is, but everything is going to be all right. Mm -hmm. Because what do you leave the session singing? It's not the verse, it's the chorus. Mm. Right. And so that's the part that then plays on the brain. That's the message that gets stuck there. That's the earworm. That's what makes the neurological changes. So that's how we get people to transform. You, you know, it's, a, it, it's an interesting thing, um, this topic of connection, Constantine. I've listened to um, Johan Hari, and, and I've read mm -hmm. some of his stuff as well. And I definitely think it's why it's a big reason why the 12 step community works so well. Yeah. And I often say this to people that don't know the 12 step community that given the profound nature of what we're coming into the 12 step community with IE addiction, all other differences are laid to the side because we have a common denominator that is so, so potentially destructive. No one cares, Republican, Democrat, Trump, Obama, and if society could only find that commonality to connect with in the way that we do in the recovery community, it would be a different world. 
Well, and I think, well, yes. And I, and I think (laughs) that there is the potential for that. Part of the problem is me is media, right? Social Mm. media. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And because one of the, one of the, and, and it's both a problem and a solution on the one hand, we can talk right from the US to Australia to you know Europe to you know we can all have this common discourse and connect but the other problem that i find you know the flip side of that is that particularly young people who depend on text don't have the kind of communication skills that are then necessary you know if you're you know constantly and have a little you know this much text we also have a generational problem. I don't speak emoji, you know? And so when, I mean, there's certain things, you know, if you put the poop emoji, I'll be yeah. nice and be on the internet, right? Or if you put, um, you know, a happy face, I mean, I can get the basics of it, but when I get a string of 15 emojis from someone who's, you know, 22 years old, I'm like, I, I, I'm unclear. I'm unclear on what you're trying to communicate to me, you know? So we gotta, we have to use, we have to use our words, right? <laughs> we have to use our words. Yeah, I tell my two-year-old that all the time, to use your words. Right, right, <laughs> right, yeah. So, so some of this is intergenerational. Some of it is, you know, one of the side of negative side effects of technology. But we also have an, what I call an inappropriate anonymity. So one of the discussions in 12 Steps is where are we anonymous? Mm-hmm. I get in trouble not, for that all the time. Right? <laughs> I get the, the older bleeding, the older deacons, they get on my case all the time because they think I'm too willing to talk about my stuff. And right. Well, we do not represent any particular 12-step program. The 12-step programs do not have um, uh, an opinion on any issues, but we are, we are su- to, supposed to be anonymous at the level of press, radio, and film. Right. So, yeah, I I have worked with 12 step programs, but I do not represent them. Mm -hmm. And I'm very clear about that. But within that community, I know a lot of people who say, you know, I am right. And they give their first and last names. And some of the real old timers when I was getting sober would say, so that's so you can find me in the phone book which we don't have anymore, right? But, but that's why we did it, so that we can find each other. And I think one of the things with, you know, especially like people who leave comments on, you know, internet posts, right? Whether it's, you know, Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or whatever, is that people are vicious because there is no connection. And what we find is that, and it doesn't matter what the community is, it could be long distance runners, it can be recovery. It can be musicians. One of the things when I started working with Rock to Recovery, I'm not a musician. And, but I am a writer. I'm an artist, you know, and I am as focused on my writing. You know, that book, Meeting God at Midnight, it's a poetry book, but it won some awards, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I am focused on my writing. So I fell in with this community of high-level creatives, right? And we are, a, we are a band, we are a tribe, we are a family, right? And so because that interpersonal connection is there, that's there where the recovery comes. So for me personally, I had a lot of childhood trauma. I, and I address that in my books, but I had a lot of tri- childhood trauma to the point that certain parts of my life were very difficult for me to function. I mean, I could be a very, you know, smart person and a researcher and a speaker, but interpersonal relationships were more challenging. Mm -hmm. And I have, in doing my work, right, so being involved in recovery, uh, doing psychological work, I do somatic therapy for myself, started meditation, all those things, right? But really, it was in connection with this community that all of my PTSD symptoms went away. And I really attribute that. Now, I don't think that would have happened. You know, they say luck is um, preparation meets opportunity, right? That's what luck is. So I don't think if I hadn't been doing my work, having, you know, these guys in my life would have fixed anything. I don't think that that's true. But when you have, when you're doing the work and then you find a community, we see healing. And you know where we saw this? We saw this in Rwanda. 
-hmm. Right? After the genocide, what happened? Communities came together. People had to go face to face, or they didn't have to, they chose to. They spoke to each other. They danced, they sang, they rebuilt those communities because we can get off base, you know? And so it doesn't just have to be recovery. It can be anything, even genocide. But we yeah. have to have yeah. that community. We have to have that connection. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, uh, again, my head's just running a million. Because like, everything you're saying, I resonate with. And it's, it's <laughs> almost as if um, through, like, you, you just clarify that or say it in a way that just makes a lot of sense. Um, and, again, reflecting on, like, personal experience. I just, yeah, want to want to thank you. Um, for what you're doing because you really are changing lives. I mean, from 22 to, to two is, is, you know, pretty phenomenal, <laughs> um, which uh, I'm, I'm sure you get a lot of reward from that internally as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I want to be clear. I mean, one of the things I've found in my life is what's important to me is service, right? So, like people are like, well, why do you, we just started doing these retreats. We're going to have one in Bali, which is, you know, I don't want to fly to Bali. Bali's far from where I am. <laughs> it's a long flight. <laughs> it's beautiful, but it's a long yeah. flight. Right? Not for and, us. <laughs> no, no, not for you. Right. But so, so next March I'll go to Bali and people are like, well, why do you do that? And I was like, because people who are not in treatment centers asked how they could work with me. And I said, oh, so you don't have to be bottom of the bear, you know, like really in a life crisis, you know, checked into a mental health facility or an addiction treatment center or jail. We also work in, you know, uh, those facilities, um, drug court to, to benefit from this. And so why will, I, why will I fly to Bali? Because I was asked to speak there. And so I'm like, well, that's a beautiful place to have a retreat so that people can work with me because I want people to have that opportunity. I want people to be able to get better. One of the reasons that I, you know, do podcasts and, and teach and talk is none of it's paid. What I want the maximum number of people to get the information because one thing I'm very clear about, I want a life of service. Like that's what I've chosen in my recovery. I want a life of service. But I also know that the change is not gonna come from my generation or my parents. We have a lid on, which is one of the reasons I wanna to talk to you guys, because we have a lid, my generation, but on power. And the change, and we see this if we watch the media. We see that the new ideas and that the groundswell change is gonna come from the young. I can give you guys tools. I can help you focus. I can tell you what the science is, right? Because young people still actually listen to science. I'm finding older people at this point in time are anti-intellectual and are not. I can tell you what the tools are, but I don't have a vested interest in the future the way younger people do. I don't have children. And by the time the worst of the effects of our choices are hitting, I will be old or passed on. Mm. So it really, my passion is to say to young people, this is the information that you haven't been given. This is what we know that can help you to take that step up. I want you to step up on my back and catapult up. That's where I want younger people to go, mm. is to use what we know to make things better because otherwise there's no future. The climate science is very clear. There is no future for us as a species. The planet will go on. It'll just be a hotter planet without people on it. But we could have a much more compassionate, beautiful, supportive future. And one of the things that I also feel is that especially working with young people, is that I don't know which of them is the one who can cure cancer or who can, you know, clean the oceans or, you know, put the first colony on. I don't know who, who I don't know who they are, but I do know that 
someone like me, I come from tremendous trauma, I should be dead. I should be a suicide or an overdose. That's my background. And I'm not. I'm a leading researcher and advocate in the field of mental health. And so if I can come from that background, I want to do what I can to make sure that any kind of kid who doesn't come from the best background also has whatever support and opportunities they can have to make the same kind of difference. And it doesn't matter what it is. You know, we need auto mechanics just as much as we need mental health researchers, right? But whatever their contribution is, I want people to be able to make it. And that's what this field is really about. That's what connection is really about, is to, yeah. is to support each other to make beautiful communities. I think, I think you really hit the nail on the head that, and if I look at my own journey, when I got back into recovery, one of the biggest, um, I think, benefits I had in my life at the time was I had a mentor in business who saw something and he lit, he, he added fuel to my purpose fire, so to speak. And what happened was that purpose became so loud. It then helped me. It gave me a sense of direction, which I never had. And then the community was created and all these moving parts came together, which now looking back, I can see the connection at the time. I didn't see how it all interplayed. And I'm, I'm a big believer as well. I'll be going to a, a, a juvenile facility very soon where it is the biggest uh, facility in Australia and in, in the kids, they just took over the jail the, uh, a couple weeks ago. And so a few of us are going in with the intention, and I'll probably pick your brain later because, you know, mm -hmm. half these kids are medicated to the hill, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of potential we hear within base kids and what I'm trying to do is go in there and replicate uh, the process which was laid out for me whether or not these kids are addicts ultimately what I found was when I had purpose and direction and that purpose became so loud it gave me the will to deal with all the trauma and all the other issues because I saw there was somewhere I was going and right, um, right. And, and Victor Frankl talks yeah. about this in his book, right? Man's yeah. Search for Meaning, right? Yeah. That, you know, even in the midst of a concentration camp, yeah. right, yeah. if we can have meaning and have purpose, and there's a beautiful story in his, in his book about a man who was sure that, I could cry thinking about it, he was sure that they were going to be liberated on a particular day. Yeah. yeah. And they yeah. weren't, and he died that afternoon. Yeah. Mm. You know, because we have, we have to have that meaning and we can overcome and go through a lot if it's going to help someone else. You know, people tell me all the time that, um, you can't get sober for your kids. And I'm like, well, that's just not my experience. Now, mm. some people, you know, it doesn't, I don't know what the right motivator is and some people don't have one right? But some people I can say, you are going to lose your kid and they will get sober. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know? And so I, I think there are two, I think there are two things that are important in what you were just talking about. One is mentorship and one is medication. Let me address the medication first because um, it's the easier topic or the briefer topic. I think it, I am not a medical doctor, but I've been in the recovery world in research for a long time. And I think it is extremely dangerous. The focus that we have on medication, particularly the focus that we have on medicating youth, because we do not know what those medications do to their brains. There are not long-term studies, and the studies that are done are mostly done by the pharmaceutical companies themselves, and the studies that are not favorable are hushed up, and that is a problem. And things like, I really focus on complementary therapies for in my research, and, um, you know, with the exception of meditation, which has just piles of research on it, again, thanks to the Dalai Lama in large part, is, um, you know, people are like, well, it doesn't matter how much research we do. People are like, well, that's not evidence-based. You have to do a, a blind, and I'm like, you know, a double blind clinical trial of the type that you're talking about really works well for pharmaceuticals. It doesn't work as well for things like 
music therapy mm-hmm. and that we have to broaden what we look at in terms of research and we have to fund research and this would have to probably come in a government level but we have to fund research that is not linked to profit because if i say well if you give me this you know one million dollars to put into research on this pharmaceutical that you can then sell right because i do not believe then we'll get funded if i say oh i'm going to teach you how to meditate and then you're going to go off and be healthy and happy there's no money for you to make Mm. (laughs) that investment so you know but and that's why in the medical world we're looking at addiction as a chronic progressive disorder like heart disease or diabetes and that's really not what we're addressing is my experience in the research the other part we're talking about mentorship i think that is so critically important i have been blessed my entire life with men and women who for no benefit out of no benefit to them have helped me out and given me direction and pointed out, sometimes not very kindly, my shortcomings to get me where I have said I wanted to go. And that was, you know, when I was a kid, my Girl Scout leaders and my 4-H leader. I remember my 4-H, 4-H is a, uh, an agricultural uh, group. I had a horse project when I was a kid, it's in the US. Um, and. Uh, I remember my 4-H leader arguing with my mother because my mother wanted me to do a a certain kind of barrel racing. You have that in Australia, rodeo. Um, And I didn't, I don't like going fast. I don't want to run, I don't want my horse to run around like crazy. And she said, you listen, no, it's not happening. I mean, stood up to my mother for me. Um, My first uh, supervisor, I worked for the Girl Scouts, my first supervisor at the Girl Scouts, you know, tremendous influence, you know? And so I've always had that. I've had that in recovery. I've had that in my work life. Uh, When I got my PhD, it was in uh, December of 2008 was when it was conferred. So right when the economy tanked, Mm. I was the first person in the world to get a degree in my field, which means I'm never getting a job ever. (laughs) Right? Because the psychology department's not gonna fund me, right? because I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, I don't fit in those silos. And so a friend of mine who owned a company, he created a position for me. And he was like, go around the world on my dime and find the best research about what helps people with drug addiction and co-occurring disorders. So without that support, I would never have had the opportunities that I've had. And now I am in the position where I can give back, right? Where I can say, oh, wait a minute. You know, so people will message me, like you messaged me and said, hey, can you, whatever. And I'm, yes. The answer is usually yes. Because, you know, I want other people to be able to give their best, whatever that is, you know? And if I can caution someone, you know, I had a a, a woman who uh, messaged me and she wanted to study I get a master's degree in Yiddish women's literature. And I said, well, are you going to get your PhD? No. Are you going to write in Yiddish? Are you going to write women's literature in Yiddish? No. Are they giving you a full scholarship? No. I'm going to have to take out student loans in New York City. So very expensive yeah, to right, live. Okay. Just the tuition. And I was like, Honey, that's just a bad idea because you're going to get saddled with all this debt mm. and, and look at jobs. First of all, you need a PhD to get a jobs teaching li- literature. And second of all, they pay very, very little. Mm. So how are you going to pay? So I can help people for even on practical things yeah, like right. that, yeah. right? To say, oh, wait a minute, that's not the next best move for me. You know, and one of the things that I try to do and I, and I love doing this with people who are new in recovery because they're a blank slate. They can do anything, right? Is what is it that you care about? That's what you should be working. That's where you should be working. You know, I mean, we have a real mistake. I didn't, I was very lucky when I went to college. I, uh, I didn't realize I was unemployed until they, after I got my diploma and they read the next person's name. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm unemployed. (laughs) I did not realize that I was in college or I wasn't, you know, wasn't how I was taught. I wasn't in college to get a job. 
I was in college to learn what mattered, to learn how to think, to learn how to research, to learn certain skills, right? And so, you know, to just do something because it makes a certain amount of money, I've never found those people to be happy, you know? And so I really encourage people, not that we don't sometimes have to have a job because it makes a certain amount of money. I mean, we, I, have to, I have to get paid for what I do on, you know, by somebody. But I also, you know, want people to follow, follow their passion and find a way to make a difference. And that's what good mental health, that's how good mental health is fostered. You know, I mean, there are some disorders that, you know, are not so treatable, but depression, anxiety, uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, actually even um, attention deficit and hyperactivity. Those can be addressed just by having a better community and a better support system. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm hoping to do. That makes sense. That's brilliant. Constance, I just, I just want to take the time to just thank you. Um, on behalf of RJ and, and the rest of the Next Gen movement, just for being you. I mean, it's been um, it's been a wonderful pleasure to have a chat with you and, and sort of get a little bit more insight into what you do and why you do it. Um, and, you know, even just before, for some of our listeners may not be able to see, but the way you spoke around, you know, service and what you do, your whole, like, demeanour and face changed, you know, which, which ah. was really authentic. So... Um, again, we just want to want to thank you and and ultimately give you sort of thirty seconds to kind of you know plug what you're doing, what you've got coming up next, um, where people could find you if they if they're interested in connecting. Yeah, so you can find me at Rock to Recovery. That's T O, not the number. Rock to Recovery dot org. Um, you can find out about me and uh, uh, my uh, and Rock Recovery and what we do. We uh, do are planning to come to Australia. So if you are a for-profit or non-profit company in Australia, my uh, I have a team that does uh, special events that would like to come out to Oz. We also do have uh, a retreat in Bali in March um, of this year, end of March. And all of that information is available um, on uh, the Rock to Recovery website. I'm also, you know, on all the places, Instagram and LinkedIn and, Facebook and, and all of that stuff. Um, Facebook is probably where um, I put a lot of information about mental health research. I, I just forward that on on Facebook is probably um, the best place if you're interested in that. Um, and I really, you know, I would love to, you know, to anyone who is looking for direction, who needs referrals, you know, that's what we do. Like I really, it is important to me because like I said, my generation is not going to fix this. This is on people who are younger and any support that we can give to make that happen and to allow you guys to grow is where we want to be. Constance, thank you so much. And I have one more question for yes. you before we sign off. We ask all our guests this one question. Mm -hmm. If you could pass one piece of game changing advice to the next generation, what would that advice be? do not let yourself be defined by other people mm. because they do even if they love you they don't know what's in your heart whatever is in your heart that's what you have to go for and it may not be your day job at first it really may not but don't let people say that you can't that you're not enough that you're whatever because i really should be nothing i really should be dead to be honest and um, the fact that I literally travel the world helping other people, you know, improve their mental health, get off of drugs and alcohol um, if they have a substance abuse problem and live the lives that they want to live would, would have been impossible if I had believed what I was told about myself. <laughs> so do not believe it. Follow what, follow what you know to be true. Thank you so much, Constance. We really appreciate your time and we'll definitely be in touch, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. You know where to reach me. Thank you so much. So much. Thank you. Bye-bye.
We would really like to thank Dr. Constance Scharf, or also known as Ahuva Bhatia, for her time with us on the Next Gen Movement. It's been a real deep dive into the nature of addiction and mental health issues with really looking at how we can use modern technology, science, and what we've learned over the years to deal with this social problem, which is right now an epidemic not only in the United States, but across the world. Some really powerful insights around how we can bring transformational change and how we really can impact people that are struggling within this space. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Take care.